Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. Missouri lawmakers are back in Jefferson City this week for a special session on violent crime. And one of the House members that will be deciding on Governor Mike Parson's agenda is State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman. The Arnold Republican joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the special session and the 2020 election cycle. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from our Beautiful and spacious Jefferson City office, uh, St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter. Jacqueline Driscoll. Our special guest today, uh, the representative for the 97th district. Did I get the number right, representative? You got it. Mary Elizabeth Coleman. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the uh, special session. We're recording this on Monday, July 27th. The special session is on, on violent crime is going to gavel into uh, into order, I guess, later today. Um, why do you think that this special session is necessary? And and what has been the reaction of some of your Republican colleagues for this session to be called? As everyone is aware, violent crime is increasing in the state of Missouri. We have the dubious honor of having two of the top 10 cities with um, murder rates in the country, astronomical increases. Um, you know, it's hard. It's easy to get numb to that level. Those numbers were only in July and we've surpassed at that high number. Um, We've got to do something to address this violent crime. It's just really terrifying and the impacts are so broad and every single one of those people is a a loved one um, and a member of our community. And I think that when you start to get high numbers like that, people can kind of glaze over. So I appreciate the governor's leadership. He's got years as a Um, law enforcement officer years in the state Senate. And the truth is our session was abbreviated. We had a COVID um, shortened session. And so some of those things that we had been working on to try to address violent crime in this, in the state, we didn't quite get to. And so I'm pleased that we're not going to wait, that we're going to address those issues. We're going to see what we need to do to try to get some policies in place to take care of those issues. I've only been in Missouri a short time. Um, It's been a year now officially, but one of the first things that I covered when I first came to St. Louis Public Radio was um, several Democrats, several lawmakers from Kansas City and St. Louis calling for a special session last year. I remember this, you know, very vividly because it was one of my first issues that I covered. But the governor was concerned about, you know, the timing of a special session and how it's um, compact or it's intended to be something that doesn't last very long and was concerned whether or not real change could happen in a special session. So why now, why this year, does it feel like there will be some substantial change as opposed to last year? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's certainly the temptation to politicize it and to say this has to be a political reason or motivated um, to do that. And I don't think that it could be further from the truth. If you look at it's a very narrowly tailored call and encompasses six ideas that were filed and vetted and went through the process through the regular legislative session. I supported um, the decision last year to wait so that we could get everybody at the table that we could have all of the interested parties and not just have something to make everybody feel better, but have some substantive changes. And I think what you'll see in this special session is, you know, really narrowly tailored calls to make sure that those issues that we had started the process on last summer, um, really at the behest of the Black Caucus, get some real buy-in and see what could really make a difference. So I think what's different is that these are vetted ideas. These are ideas that have had a year's conversation and it is really too important of a decision or a you know, thing to wait, but also too important to just kind of have a knee jerk reaction and say, well, let's hope this helps. Let's you know, kind of just grasp in the dark at straws. At the press conference when the governor announced that he was going to be calling a special session, he, he did lay out those six priorities and also mentioned that I don't know if bipartisan was the correct word, but indicated that there likely wouldn't it it would draw support from both Republicans and Democrats. And I sat through some of the conversations, uh, specifically uh, police residency for St. Louis police officers. At this point in time, is there buy in from both sides? Is this going to be a special session that is able to wrap up quickly because some of those issues have already been discussed? Yeah, so I'm glad that you brought up the residency requirements. I think that that's one of the um, more hot button um, topics that is part of the call, but it's really being led by the leadership of Lyda Krusen, the mayor of the city of St. Louis. Um, I'm fortunate enough to serve on judiciary and general laws in the House, and those are the committees that these types of issues will often go through. And so I've sat in those same hearings, and you just heard um, police officer after police officer after police officers saying this residency requirement will help us attract and retain law enforcement officers. There's a shortage in the city of St. Louis. We don't have the people needed to get the job done. Um, and I, I, I love the city of St. Louis. I love serving the 97th district um, where I'm an exter, but I, I don't think that most cities have to have a rule that says you have to live there to work there. My husband works in Clayton. I'm really glad we live in Arnold. That doesn't mean we dislike Clayton. It just means that Arnold is a better fit for our family. I think a lot of people feel that way. I know, Jason, you have a child. You talk about openly about having some special needs and how important being in the special school district is. That testimony was heard over and over and over that those who serve have children who have academic needs and can't often get those needs met in the St. Louis City public school system, and they can't maybe afford the parochial or private school system. And so Interestingly, a lot of that conversation really centered around what the needs of the broader family were and how to get academic access. I guess the answer, I'm kind of rambling, but yes, this is a bipartisan support, although the Democratic Party has significant factions within it. Not everybody is on board with loosening those residency requirements, um, but certainly when the mayor of the city of St. Louis is saying, please do this to the state, that's something that you don't often see um, in other states, that kind of bipartisan coalitions and, and working well together. So you're right. I've heard from a number of police officers that they have to choose between staying on the city police force and going to St. Louis County to get better special education services. And obviously, as somebody who did that himself, I'm extremely sympathetic to that. 
What I would ask, though, is there's already a ballot initiative that's been placed on the city ballot to remove the residency requirement for many city employees. Why not just have city voters decide on that issue rather than the legislature deciding for them? Well, we hear their elected official coming to the state and asking for help and support. And I just think it's too important of a policy that to wait any longer. Residency requirements have been debated in the city of St. Louis for years and years. And the truth is, is that they have been in place and they have been removed and they have been in place. And by having the state put that rule in place, it takes that boomerang effect and gives some stability to the people who are serving on those for, as those law enforcement officers. So local control is important. Obviously, I'm a conservative Republican. I, I like local control where we can have it. But there are times when the needs of the community, the needs of the state mean that we need to have the state come in and uh, make those decisions. And I know that there is discussion about adding it to the whole state and Kansas City being included as well. Um, was that just an issue that was too broad um, to be added to the special session agenda? I don't know exactly how the the decision was made. I do know that these six specific ideas have been really well vetted and um, there was a large amount of agreement between the parties who would affect. And that was a piece of that legislation that never got to an agreement. There were people within the city of Kansas City who wanted to be included. There were those who did not want to be included. And um, the organizations that represent police officers also didn't get to a place where they wanted to weigh in on the Kansas City decision. And I think it came to, a, it just made sense to let's do what we can where we have agreement and keep talking about those other issues. Speaking of some other issues, um, we're also seeing a lot of lawmakers, specifically Democrats, calling for police reform to be added. I know that the governor was asked about this as well, and he said that that was an issue that was uh, too controversial and, again, needed to be uh, addressed in a regular legislative session. In fact, Jacqueline, before you ask your question, here is the governor answering that right now. You, We know, I know that those will be lengthy discussions, trying to find out what the end game to that is and how are you going to do that through the process. That does need to go through committee processes. Testimony needs to be heard on that. That is going to be a lengthy process, I believe, to get that done. That's what the legislative sessions are for. So I, again, as I talk to legislators today, I think those discussions will be there. I just don't see you be how to get that done in a special session. And again, I think the violent crime right now that we're seeing the homicide rate, we gotta do everything we can to slow that down. Especially given the climate that that we're in right now with the ongoing protest effort and this, you know, these continuous calls for police reform, not just in Missouri, but across our country. Do you think that violent crime and police re reform would produce the best results? So there's no question that we're going to be having conversations about police reform. I was trying if you um, to look down and see if I could find Representative Shamed Jogan from St. Louis County has been an incredible leader on making sure that bad officers are held accountable. I think everybody wants to see that and that's something that we need to take steps to make sure that that's happening. Um, so we will have broader conversations with that, but I appreciate that the governor did keep it where he did to make sure that we can address violent crime right now, because we just need to have a lot more conversation about, do we include no-knock warrants? There are certain policing um, things that are restraints that have been used that are not well supported by um, best practices, by the police forces that everyone agrees should not be used. And I think we wanna make sure that we get that taken care of and get it appropriate. So, so yeah, we're gonna, I think we're gonna see that in the session, but I don't 
like the reforms that now are cumulative over a year of dialogue and conversation and making sure we're getting this right, I think that that needs to have a full conversation as well. We're talking about violent crime and why that should be addressed very quickly because it's needed. Um, but a lot of people have some serious concerns about police reform and, and they want that addressed just as quickly. So why the 2021 regular session? We have a lot of problems across the state. Um, access to medical care, the cost of medical insurance, um, problems with our foster care system. We're working on a number of issues and there is a legislative process for that. And when you call a special session, you of course open the door for people to say, well, why didn't you include this? Why didn't you include that? It's not to say that police reform isn't really important and that the protests around George Floyd's murder um, aren't they don't that they don't have to happen. They do and they need to make sure that we're addressing those in the state of Missouri as across the country. But you, you can't address everything in a special session. It's just not the nature of what that is. I'm going to play a clip now from Senator Brian Williams, one of the Democrats that has been pushing for overhauling police practices to be part of a special session. And I'll use this to dovetail to my next question about the realisticness of actually accomplishing this in a regular session. Uh, as the only black man in the Missouri Senate, I, I think it's, 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 it's important that I not only uh, stress the importance of the conversation, but get Missouri caught up to speed by banning uh, no-knock warrants, banning chokeholds, um, addressing uh, things like civilian arrest, and most importantly, uh, figuring out how do we um, ensure that we're taking steps to make sure that our police departments are trained and are creating de-escalation tactics to ensure what happened in Minnesota doesn't happen in Missouri. There have been efforts to pass laws to overhaul policing practices since 2015, and many of them have not been successful of getting through the legislative session. Um, and many Republicans have this posture that any reforms of policing somehow comes off as anti-police. And you kind of see that in some of the ads you're seeing for state Senate candidates, where a lot of the protests are being described very derisively. So how does that history and the posture of some of your Republican colleagues that are going to control the legislative process in 2021 create a barrier to actually getting stuff done on overhauling policing practices? I think sometimes what happens is we get hung up on the different words that we use. So everybody needs to have access to their First Amendment rights to protest, but you almost see a dichotomy where there's two worlds that people are seeing. So you see the left portraying everyone as a peaceful protester while there's People are literally trying to burn down federal courthouses. And on the, you see dads with leaf blowers trying to blow away gas um, from law enforcement officers to moms who are protesting. And so I think sometimes we see these things and we see them through the lens in which we see the world. Um, Senator Williams and um, Representative Dogan have been working on these issues since they've gotten elected. This isn't unheard of in a Republican state and a Democratic state to make sure that everybody is treated with human dignity, right? We want to make sure everybody has dignity, that their rights are protected, that their constitutional rights are protected. And I think that it is often kind of a cop-out to say, oh, are we going to see any meaningful reform in a Republican system? Are we going to see any meaning reform in a Democratic system? These are by and large not 
partisan issues, although we see them through our partisan lens. We want to make sure that our cities are safe. We want to have a strong law enforcement presence that knows how to de-escalate, who knows how to deal with mental health crises, but also is going to step up and say, you know what, we're not going to allow rioting. We're not going to allow people to set things on fire. We're not. We're going to be able to be trained to see who are those radical elements within a peaceful protest so that we can separate them and not paint people with a broad brush. So I feel really hopeful that there is um, progress, that there is movement that's going to be made. Um, so I don't, I guess I don't share your pessimism. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman, a Republican from Arnold. I want to talk to you about Medicaid expansion because that's going to be the top ballot issue on the August 4th ballot. Um, I know that you have been an outspoken opponent of what's known as Amendment 2, which would expand Medicaid under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act, I think to about 138% of the federal poverty level. I want to get your perspective about why you think it's a bad idea. So first and foremost, my concern is that health insurance and access to health care for most Missourians is too expensive. Um, it's, people can't get the care that they need. There, it is a real problem. But my concern is that Amendment 2 isn't the solution to fix it, and in fact, is only going to make the problem worse. Uh, Missouri currently has about 90% of our, of our population has access to health insurance. And what I hear in my district over and over again is that health insurance rates, health insurance deductibles and co-pays, people have health insurance, but they can't afford to pay for it. And Medicaid expansion would expand only to a, a certain population, right? So we're talking about 19 to 64-year-old adults um, who are not permanently and totally disabled. So right now the Medicaid program provides support for children, it provides support for pregnant women, for the elderly and for the disabled. And Missouri has an incredibly generous plan. Right now we spend two out of every $5 of the state budget on providing Medicaid support for those populations. And my worry is that we have to come up with the 10% to pay for those roughly 230,000 people to have access to health insurance. And I don't know where the money is going to come from. And when I look at where other states have come up with that money, they've done it through other revenue generators. They've started new taxes or they've implemented co-pays or premiums for the Medicaid population. Um, or they've reduced coverage for the existing Medicaid populations. And I don't want to expand at the cost of providing good care for our kids, for our most vulnerable in our society. And so that's that's my real concern is I don't know where we're going to get the money to pay for it. You and I recently talked about this um, for a story that I did um, kind of looking at the pros and cons of what supporters and opponents say about Medicaid expansion. A lot of those who are in support of Amendment 2 um, indicate that there won't be a rise, sorry, that there won't be a rise in cost. Um, I think there was, it was a study done at WashU um, where it shows that it would actually either be budget neutral or a benefit to our state. So how do you respond to that? 
one of the real frustrating problems about technical changes like this is you see really wide discrepancies from people saying, what is the impact going to be? Is it going to cost more money? Is it going to save more money? What's the range of cost? So we see everything from a billion dollar savings that the Wash U study projects to a $6 billion cost to the state from some of the other independent groups that are publishing these things. So you have to really drill down and see what are the assumptions that people are basing these decisions on and try to see if that holds. So for me, what's really indicative is, first of all, do you really think we can add 230,000 Missourians to a state service at no cost or a cost benefit? I don't know that that's the case, right? So we'll start there. I haven't seen that happen. Um, even if you use, there's the auditor study shows a $50 million cost, I think it's $53 million cost in the first year. So even if we use that, which is a pretty um, conservative expense estimate that I have seen, I don't know where we're going to come up with that $50 million to cover that year one expense. I personally tried to look for that expense or that amount um, in the past. Let me actually address that point. Number one, managed care organizations have offered to tax themselves. You could tax vaping products. You could legalize marijuana and use the proceeds to pay for Medicaid. You, you could like build another casino and just say all the revenue from that casino goes to Medicaid. My point for bringing all this up, I'm not saying that those are solutions here, but isn't saying that the only option you have is cutting things not really the case when you have all those other things I mentioned that really wouldn't affect people beyond vapors or marijuana smokers or managed care companies. So Missourians are under our constitution, we require um, new taxes to be voted on by the people. And if you'll remember in 2018, there was a very modest tax that was proposed as the gas tax. Um, that failed. We have seen tax proposals after tax proposals when they have put, been put to the voters been denied. So my, my question of saying we have to cut something or my answer to saying we have to cut something is based on Missourians time after time after time vote against tax increases, even for specific uses like those that you suggested. And so when the voters tell us they don't want any new taxes and won't vote in favor of them, we have an obligation, and I'm really proud of the fact that Missouri really continues to pass a balanced budget. You know, Illinois also has a requirement to pass a balanced budget. They don't follow theirs. Missouri does, and, and that means a lot to me, and we work really hard to make those hard choices. There was a, when we went back to session, we knew we were going to have to cut things in the budget because of the COVID shutdowns, and I sent a survey out to my district saying, what should we cut? And no one suggested a single thing they thought we should cut. Everyone suggested things they wanted saved. Um, and I want to save those things too. But without, we can't expand entitlements and at the same time maintain taxes at the same level and maintain spending in all other areas. The math just doesn't work. This this was something that was seemed to be evident that was going to be on the ballot very early. Um, I, I remember in Governor Parson's State of the State address, this was something that he was addressing um, and, and telling voters to be wary of. And this may be my newness to Missouri politics, but because it was evident that that would likely go to the voters, why didn't the GOP try to come up with or craft a plan during the legislative session? I do know that it, it got severely cut short, but it didn't even see, seem like that was going to be a topic of discussion. 
I don't know. I think that's a great question why we didn't come up with our own plan. But I think, you know, Missourians have looked at multiple plans in the past and have been able to evaluate that. The medical marijuana proposals come to mind. And so there is an ability, I think, for people to kind of look at multiple proposals. I, I don't know why we didn't come up with one. I, I wish we had. I think people, if we had said, do you want this tax in order to have that proposal or do you want I'm just speculating now, but my my guess is the one that has no revenue source is probably the one that would pass, right? So if you put two plans out there and one says, how are you going to pay for it? And one doesn't ask how you're going to pay for it. I think people will probably vote for the one that doesn't have a cost. So I, I don't like to make predictions in election, elections, but I followed ballot initiatives for a long time. And ballot initiatives that do not have a no campaign running a lot of television ads often pass. And that's pretty much the case with this one. I know that there's digital ads. I know that there is a no campaign, but the yes campaign is much better funded and is running TV ads nonstop, which means I think there's a good chance of this passing. And my next question is, if this does pass, could we see Republicans try to put like a a work requirement on the ballot for 2022? that could potentially, I don't want to say neutralize Medicaid expansion, but severely reduce it. So seven states that have passed this Medicaid expansion have put in place work requirements. I think that that's something that will have to be on the table. The problem is, is that if you can, if you look at the ballot language of this, you can't just have guidance for the expansion population. The ballot language requires all rules and regulations to apply equally to all across the Medicaid sphere. And so that means putting work requirements on pregnant women as well and on the disabled. And that makes me really nervous about what we're saying about our values as a state if we're forced into trying to, to do that. I think this is, again, I have ranted against the initiative petition process before, and I'm going to do that a little bit now. I've never seen a piece of substantive legislation in my time in the legislature that was filed and passed in the same way. It always changes, and it changes usually for the better because there's unintended consequences that people have. And I think that that work requirement piece is one of those that saying all rules have to apply um, is is not going to be the result that Missourians would want to have put in place, but that is one of those ways that other states have controlled costs. Um, like I said, six or seven states have put work requirements into place because they have to find a way to pay for it. Medicaid costs are spiraling out of control all across the country. I agree when there's no money against something, it is harder to, um, to, fight, something, to fight it. But what I see is those who are responsible for actually paying, figuring out how do we implement this? How do we pay for it? How do we make it happen? They're the ones who are ringing the alarm bell saying, hey guys, we can't, what, what do you want to have done? And to me, it feels a little bit like we're going to require us to put in place an expensive program that we don't have a revenue source. And then when cuts have to be made to pay for that, then you're going to get pointed to. So we're not going to come up with a way to pay for it. We're going to say, you have to figure it out. And then when we figure out how to pay for it, they're going to say, you're heartless. Why are you cutting things and doing this to pay for it? Um, and it, it it's a little frustrating. Medicaid has, has been a rising cost uh, of the the state budget. I think that that's fair to say. Um, it, it took up one fourth and, and now it's one third, you know. Um, so either way, and maybe this is 
incorrect. But in, in my mind, either way, you would have to address those rising costs soon anyway, correct? I do think that that's true. We're, at some point, we're going to have to look at how do we pay for Medicaid in general. And, and Medicaid, is, again, it's a little tricky because it's you mentioned CHIP just a minute ago. So if people aren't that familiar, Medicaid is actually just a catch-all term used for a number of different health insurance programs administered by the state, paid for in part at least by the federal government. And so all of those, every state is having to evaluate those costs. Um, New York just had a massive study that was done um, so, yes, at some point we're going to have to look at how we're we paying for Medicaid, whether we expand or not. And I guess that's really my argument is if we already have out of control costs with the existing population and we know that no one can be removed from Medicaid once they're put on, how, why are we exasperating a system that is already broken? But I agree with you, Jason. I don't, I don't, I mean, without an expansive, expensive, you know, campaign to try to say, no, let's not do this. It is really hard to get the message out and it, it's a very, very complicated issue. And we hear things that are just blatantly not true in the ads that make it sound like, well, yeah, we should do that. So one of those is we need to bring our federal dollars back. Our federal dollars are going to other states. There's this ad of, you know, that shows money flying into other states from Missouri. Missouri receives more money and services from the federal government than we pay in taxes, just like 42 other states in this country. So that's just not true to say we're trying to get our own taxpayers' dollars back. What we would just be doing is expanding deficit spending at the federal level. Maybe you don't care about that, maybe you do. But again, all of it's hard to combat that if you don't have any money to spend that message. But the people who have to pay, who, are, who have to figure out how we're going to pay for it, are ringing the alarm bells. So let's shift gears more generally to elections. Um, I know that you represent a, a slice of Jefferson County, but you also represent part of St. Louis County, which means you're probably paying attention to the St. Louis County Executive Democratic primary. I, I actually think a lot of Republicans are. And I know that there are some Democrats that are upset about this reality, but Republicans are going to vote in the Democratic primary. So I'd be interested to hear your perspective on how that race is going and, and what it means for the county's Republican population going forward. So I agree with you. St. Louis County is by and large a democratically held county. And so I have encouraged everyone in my district, um, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, to go ahead and pull a Democratic ballot so that we have a say in the governance of the county. We have some really different views about ways to proceed and what we should be doing. There's four candidates in the county executive race. That's obviously, I think, outside of Medicaid expansion and no on two, the most important um, thing that's going to be on the ballot in August for people in our region. And, uh, and you know, you have really different visions of where we should proceed and how we should proceed. While we're recording this, um, County Executive Page just put in more rollbacks about what he thinks should be happening for the COVID response for the St. Louis area. Um, you know, no more than 50 people at a gathering and on and on and on. And if we're going to have a say and who makes those types of decisions, Republicans have to pull a Democratic ballot. And this this may dovetail into our, our next discussion about the governor, but how do you think the COVID response is playing in that particular race? Because I think it's the number one issue. And there there's two sides of the continuum that I hear, a, a criticizing page. Some believe that page wasn't restrictive enough and wasn't quick enough in North St. Louis County, which he disputes, by the way. 
And then there's kind of the Republican argument that the restrictions are too restrictive. I know that you were one of the people that criticized him on closing the county parks when the city parks weren't open, which, frankly, I think not just Republicans were criticizing him for. How do you think that issue is going to determine who wins that primary? Well, I wonder if these new restrictions that are coming out aren't trying to play to the base. I think that the people who are really pushing for a reopening um, are not typically Democratic voters, that um, there's a concern to me that these new provisions that have been put in place are really about trying to solidify his base and about trying to make sure that that turnout happens. One of the things that's really interesting about Governor Parson's response is he has said over and over, he thinks that this needs to be local decisions that are made so that the voters are closer to those who are making those decisions. Um, and you see wildly different responses to those decisions that are being made. Jefferson County has by and large reopened. Um, many of our corporate partners are requiring masks in stores. I think that if a business wants you to wear a mask, you should wear a mask or you should decide not to shop in that store. Um, but it is really silly when we have one part of our region behaving in one way and other parts not doing the same thing. So you brought up the parks as an example. When you've got Jefferson County, St. Charles County, and St. Louis City having open parks and St. Louis County has closed their parks, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, when you put new restrictions in place, it's really important that you know what are the metrics that you're going to use to decide when you take those back, when you roll those back, and are they narrowly tailored for the outcome? You see in Nevada where you can go play bingo or you can gamble, but you can't go to church. Um, there's some real frustration with people about seeing really different types of reactions based on the activity that you're engaging in. When I'm talking to a constituent who can't hold her husband's hand while he receives chemo, and then you see videos in the media praising hundreds of thousands of people protesting in the streets with and without masks on, that feels really deeply unjust. Um, when somebody can't go and worship God and, and um, participate in synagogue or in church, who can't receive communion, and yet people are gathering in the streets, there's a real visceral pain and a hurt that's happening there. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't be able to exercise their First Amendment rights to protest. In fact, I think that that's important and they should absolutely be able to do that. But then when you see on the flip side restrictions about the exercise of religion, it's really hard to understand why is one permitted and one is not permitted. And so that becomes a political issue. Well, let's shift to the, the state response. I would say that the biggest criticism I've heard of Parson is that he didn't act fast enough to do a statewide order that put the same restrictions on everybody. And st even if he did, he still allowed different counties to go farther than he did. So doesn't some of the responsibility for some of these disparate regulations with COVID lie with the governor? Well, I think when you have communities that are having incredibly different impacts on the COVID um, outbreak, it doesn't make sense to have a one size fits all solution. And I really applaud the governor because when you're facing something that no community has looked at before, we haven't experienced something like this and you have the left saying this is not the right solution and you have the far right saying this is not the right solution. Often that means you're hitting it right where you should. Um, when you look at the data, the curve really was flattened. It's been tremendously flattened. 
we have resources in our community now to address this illness. And I think that reopening and asking people to take personal responsibility isn't an inappropriate thing. And I, I have to tell you, I, I don't find fault with the governor's um, approach to letting each community decide what they think is appropriate, and then also holding their elected officials responsible for what is decided. Governor Parsons can be running on state auditor Nicole Galloway. Uh, I think that this, even though the state has moved definitively to the Republican side, I think that this race could be very competitive, especially if Biden ends up only losing Missouri by single digits. We saw in 2016, for example, that Chris Coster lost against Eric Greitens by about 6 percent when Trump won by 19 percent. How do you think the presidential race will factor into whether Governor Parson gets elected to a full term? And how do do you think that this race will be competitive? Because I've had some Republicans say they don't believe it's going to be competitive because they feel the state is, is too red for a Democrat to win statewide. So when we look at the historical data, we had a Democratic governor in 2017. That was just three years ago. So when we say it's too red for a Democrat to win, I think it's a little bit short-sighted. That being said, Governor Parson has all the resources he's going to need to be able to have a full campaign. I think that he's making a lot of good decisions about addressing things that Nicole has, for better or for worse, not had to weigh in on. I mean, that's the benefit of being the challenger is that you get to just throw stones, but she doesn't have a plan for violent crime. She doesn't have a plan for fighting COVID. She doesn't have a plan for reopening schools. She's gotten to take a pass on every national issue of making a real answer for, and he hasn't. He's had to actually govern. And so I, I think that Mike is, Governor Parson is working very, very hard and he's doing a great job. And also, I think that July is very, very far away from November. I was looking at historical data, um, and Dukakis was winning in 88 in the July, and there were articles about how he was, it was just going to um, be a cakewalk in November. So we're very, very far away from the November election. Five months ago, um, we knew that COVID had ravaged uh, China and was in Italy and we were watching carefully about what was happening. And as Trump was closing the borders to China, he was being accused of being xenophobic and racist. So February 27th looks very different from July 27th. And I think that November is going to look very different from today as well. I told Jason that I really wanted to talk to you about your mental health amid the pandemic and being at home with six kids <laughs> because we both have two kids and I am about ready to just, I don't know, live in isolation underground somewhere. <laughs> Assuming you can leave the kids above ground. For right. Yeah. <laughs> You'd like sneak 10 minutes in the pantry or something. Yeah. So um, as hard as the pandemic has been for our community, it's been really lovely for my family personally. So we've okay. never had this kind of time together that Chris is home and I'm home with our kids. I mean, We've been all together for four months um, and we've gotten into a rhythm now. I'm really happy that we're not doing school right now. We have one kid who has some special learning um, needs that have been very, very difficult for us to make sure that progress isn't lost. Um, I'm really glad that I'm not in Jeff City while we're trying to 
do schoolwork for five kiddos and chase a two-year-old. Um, so while we're kind of in vacation mode and we're just working um, and not also trying to do school, that's been really nice. But um, I also, I have a 15-year-old. I have a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, an eight-year-old, and the two-year-old. You have four-year-old twins. We live in totally <laughs> different parenting worlds. <laughs> but you're like, you're like the shining example of what COVID can do to families. And I'm like hanging on by a thread. <laughs> I will also say we made a decision really early on within our community. Um, we have a quarantine. So we have some neighbors across the street. And when everybody was really very much not going anywhere, we had just one adult who was running errands for the three households and the kids were playing and the parents were sitting and having a drink on the driveway together. And I mean, so we've been... Um, we have some community as well, which makes a world of difference. That's amazing. Representative, thank you so much for joining our show. It's always great to talk with you. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter? At Driscoll NPR. And Representative, how can people follow you either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Yeah, so on Twitter at M-E-A-C Coleman. And I'm also on Instagram. That's probably where I'm actually on, like most suburban moms the most. So follow me on Instagram. And uh, I have a Facebook profile for my mother and uh, a Facebook page for the campaign. So check that out. But I'm mostly on Twitter and Insta. 